It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buff. And Peter, just before I hit record uh, this morning, um, we were talking about the International Space Station because I've been watching the International Space Station fly overhead uh, early in the pre-dawn hours a few times this week. It is uh, maybe the size of a small house. Right. Not a terribly huge thing. Mm -hmm. It's 250 miles up in orbit. Right, which and is kind of hard to imagine, but it's way up there. Yeah, think about it, you <laughs> yeah, know, from yeah. here to Philadelphia yeah, away. Right, right, right. And it's the size of a house, but it reflects so much sunlight that it's the third brightest object in the night sky after the moon and Venus, which is very prominent mm-hmm. this time of year, the morning star. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just puts things into perspective for me that there we are up in space. Six men are flying right. around the planet at uh, almost five miles per second. Wow. And it it kind of feels that way when you look at it, right? It's just racing. Like, it, it's it's unbelievable to see yeah. that. It, has yeah. the imp- it looks like a star. It's not mm-hmm. like, it doesn't look like an airplane because there are no blinking lights on it it looks right. like a star um with a with a place to be in a hurry <laughs> exactly. you know it's moving across <laughs> the sky and you can yep. um track the uh, international space station the uh, nasa website will send you email advisories about when it's going to be in your part of the country so you can oh, uh, look up and see it at night or, or right. as i've been doing before uh the sun comes up it's amazing but it reminds me of scale Right. And people I know who've been listening to the show a lot have been struck by the idea of scale. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. you know, like, for instance, that the Uni- uh, United States may be too big. Right. Yeah. I to- love posing that question to a lot of our guests to see how they react. And it's pretty consistent, which is, is which is a fun reaction to get. It's like, wow. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> many, many of the guests have noted that. Uh, Zephyr yep. Teachout uh, yep. a few weeks ago noted that. And I'm just curious, um, where did that idea come from? And can you articulate it a little bit for folks? Well, I guess uh, it first really came from the other thing I talk about a lot, which, which is bioregions. You know, we had Spencer Beebe on the show before, and he really introduced me to that idea. And it made so much sense and then I started to get further and further into history, and pretty much everything I can trace uh, in terms of conflict comes to overpopulation or resource depletion or some sort of, you know, bumping up against somebody else. <laughs> and so, uh, and then, and then the difficulty, uh, on the other hand, of governing large groups of people as the groups get larger it seems that things start to fray, at least around the edges or maybe in the center. I don't know, (laughs) one or the other. Uh, And so everything sort of points to scale as being an ongoing issue. And and then you look at the country, frankly, and you think it's pretty darn big. And one of the biggest ones there is. I mean, obviously, Russia is bigger and some others, but but we're— uh, we may be too big for our britches. <laughs> and the and what happens there, I think, too, is when you get to be too big, you can't – everything has to be sort of um, issued institutionally. Like if you're going to yeah. govern, you can't be worried about this one person or that one person because you've got the, the whole in mind. And a lot of people on the fringes get left behind because of that. Right. And, and there are different kinds of fringes, of course. Um, uh, certainly economic fringes are the most obvious in a lot of ways. But cultural fringes, again, how could we possibly think that someone in Alabama, someone in Oregon, and someone in Maine have the same interests and, and needs and uh, you know issues that they want to deal with? I mean, it's, and that's not to say any of them are 
are wrong or right. It's just they're very, very different. Yeah, it's interesting, and and they're uh, bound together by this notion of being American. Those very right. those disparate um, right. regions, when what they have much more in common than that sort of artificial construct has to do with surviving the cold New England winters, which doesn't mean a lot to people perhaps in Alabama. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing I've I've started to realize is that when we were in smaller groups, we were literally clans, you know. Uh, we would wander around hunting and gathering uh, with family members and extended family members. And as we were more successful, uh, we'd become tribes. Uh, and then as we kind of settled down in a place that had a lot of resources, uh, we might become a small little city or something. And as we grew, we needed something to keep the kinship alive. Because once it wasn't a family, then you had sort of a mythology around something to collectively believe in. And then you have religions, and then you have flags. <laughs> and, you know, you really see that it goes from the very real uh, to the very abstract, and it's hard to keep an abstract family intact. It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buff. It's Radio Woodstock 100.1. And next, we're going to be joined in the studio for the whole show today by Rich Blundell. He's going to blow your mind. It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buffett, and we are joined in the studio this time by Rich Blundell. Hello, Rich. Hello. Oh, my God. I'm <laughs> listening to this show. I feel like I'm actually listening to it. <laughs> but you're here. <laughs> this is awesome. Oh, my God. Exactly. Can I just say thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show because I know, because I've been listening to the show now, and I, I, I can hear the caliber and the interestingness of the people you've had. You could have had any one of those big history bigwigs on this show and you're allowing we me went to, with uh, you. I just so thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I sh maybe I should have waited until after this is over. <laughs> right. Maybe I'm going to be like cursing you for ruining my career no, or for allowing absolutely. me to ruin my career. <laughs> right. Exactly. If anyone's going to do it, you are. So, uh, uh, no. Well, obviously we've met before, and uh, since then I've been uh, really enamored with with big history, both as an idea and and the actual reading of it and learning more about it. Uh, and maybe you can start by uh, explaining a little bit to the listener what big history really is. I can try. I mean, I dread this question because it's, <laughs> it means so much to me. So, right. right. And it's complex. But yep. <clears throat> basically, big history is an attempt to understand human history in the context of the universe. Mm -hmm. But in order to really understand it, in order to get a really you know, holistic understanding of humans, you got to know something about the universe, too. You have to understand the preconditions to humans. Right. And those preconditions extend all the way back to the beginning of the universe. So that's what big history attempts to do. It, it attempts to understand all of that stuff that happened before us that makes us us. Right. And so <clears throat> that requires science. You know, in the beginning yeah. of the story, there's a lot of science, physics, astronomy, chemistry, biology, geology, all those ologies are sort of bunched up at the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. But then you slowly shift into the human part, the social sciences, the economics, the art. So right. in order to really get a holistic view of this whole picture that we're a part of, 
that's what big history is attempting to do. And what I really love about big history and what's what also kind of drives me crazy about it is mm-hmm. that it's commitment to science or evidence-based knowledge, basically. Right. right. And so that that at in there is a, is a critical piece of it. It's right. a really critical right. piece. Now, right. there's the field of big history, which is the academic discipline that has just emerged to try to make sense of it all. Mm-hmm. And then there's the subject of big history, which is the story itself, the right. story of right. the universe. And one of the things I think that is really important to note is just what you said, which is it is interdisciplinary. It breaks down silos. And I think the last 500 years in particular of reductionism has created silos and people not talking to each other about the very disciplines they're so interested in and focused on. And that has created uh, siloed information, you know, and, and that's where power lives is in trying to keep people from talking to each other. So big history breaks down all these walls and gives us a picture I, I don't think we've really ever had before. Yeah, it, it requires that. It re- it, it, that's a requisite of, of understanding right. big history is to right. break through those boundaries. And, right. and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I have a real affection for the disciplines and, oh, and, and reductionism too. Right. Right. You know, the, right. But the thing about, and my family will get a chuckle out of this, but the thing about reductionism is you're taking things apart to understand them, right. but then you got to put them back together again. And that sometimes is the part that we leave out with right. science, is putting right. stuff back together again. And it's hard because you're talking about having a, some understanding of all those disciplines, right? So I don't know how you keep all that in your head. I don't. That's why I have cheat sheets here and, you know, and, and the numbers mm-hmm. you know, and the dates and a lot of times the names. I can't keep track of that right. stuff. But I think it's really most important to know that stuff only insofar as it contributes to the way that understanding the story can transform us. Right. In other words, just knowing the dates and things like that doesn't matter. Right. But, but the, the sequence of those dates and the scales of time between those dates – Right. That's what's really important, I think, about Exactly. It. And we actually, Jimmy and I started the show today uh, talking about scale and that he saw the International Space Station this morning, you know, and, and just what that does to your mind. And so the idea, he saw it in space. He wasn't. I wasn't there. <laughs> right. But exactly. You mean you looked through a telescope and saw it? Or no. Binoculars? No. no you can see it with naked eye. Yeah, with your naked so eye. So you were up that early. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. Right. And you can see it in the evenings, too. And they, um, depending on where it crosses the planet, the uh, NASA has a website. Yeah. And they'll tell you where in your area you can see it. And uh, we, as we mentioned, it's 250 miles up in space, maybe the size of this building. Mm. Yet it's the third largest, uh, brightest object in the night sky after the moon and Venus. And... Those guys, the six people on the space station right now, International Space Station, are looking down on the entire planet. Mm. You know, so they're not really focused on that that little sliver of sound bite that has the internet in uproar right now. Yeah. Right, exactly. They're cool seeing that, the whole thing. It's cool that you're looking up at it, thinking it's this crazy, awesome technical machine. But they're looking down at this one. At where this is where the complexity is. Right. This is where the action is down here. Exactly. And so I want to also let the listener know uh, you're on for the whole show, which is something we haven't done before, because we have, what, 14 billion years to cover? Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we figured we'd take the whole hour. <laughs> um, where do you want to start? Well, <clears throat> I think the most logical and rational place to start the story of the universe is actually in mystery, because we don't know. You know, you ask right. any physicist, they don't know what's all the way back there before the Big Bang. Right. We can get it down to 10 to the negative 43 seconds, which is a, you know, a, a decimal point with 43 zeros 
you know, one seconds. But before right. that, mystery. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that mystery because we can talk, you know, for hours about what we know. Right. But what we don't know is right there at the beginning. And right. here's the funny thing about that mystery. We don't know what it is. So it's like it could be present here. So in other words, exactly. if instead of starting with the big bang, like here's what we know, you start with that mystery, it's the mystery that's expanding. Right. Do you see what I mean? I love that. No, I, and and uh, someone once said that that's where science and religion uh, meet. It's like just give us one free miracle, and then we can explain everything okay. else. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can buy that, but i also not sure I'd call it religion because religion does have a place in this story. Oh, sure. You know, yeah, 13. absolutely. 13.8 billion years later. Yeah, yeah. But um, – yeah, so that's where I would start it with this. Ex- now, how do you, how long do you want to spend on this? Because you're right, it's 13.8 billion years. A little less than that. <laughs> yeah, would, exactly. Do you want me to see, well, let's see how far I get then. Great. Yeah. Oh, and I'm a little different. Like if you study the big history narrative as it's out there, mm-hmm. it, what I, I try to do it a little bit differently. In other words, I, I try to focus more on the, the relationships as opposed to the entities that they talk about. Maybe that'll be Maybe that'll become clear as I go along here. But... Essentially, we've got mystery. Right. Suddenly, for some mysterious reason, that mystery begins to expand really fast, really hot, really dense. You can't even imagine what this environment is like. If you were to get plopped back into, you know, 200,000 years after the Big Bang and took a picture with your iPhone, it would be unrecognizable. And it's the whole universe. It's not like you have somewhere else to go back to to show your friends. That's it, man. The mm-hmm. entire universe is a dense, hot, white plasma of unimaginable energy it's in fact it's so energetic that these little things that we call particles can't even live there they can't even function they can't maintain their own structure because there's so much energy the minute they come into existence they go back out so that's what the early universe looks like you know about before 380,000 years and the other thing that happens and this is really interesting is that fundamental forces emerge during that time so there's four of them that we pretty much identify gravity the strong nuclear force weak nuclear force and electromagnetism. Those four forces are the definers of the relationships. See, so it's really important to start thinking now about relationships because as this thing cools, as this universe expands and cools, it finally gets to a point at 380,000 years ago that it cools enough so that that matter can actually exist. I'm going to uh, correct you 380,000 years after the Big oh, Bang. Okay, yeah. 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 What did I say? Yeah, you said 380,000 okay, years ago. Thank you. Thank right, you. yeah, right. yep. Uh, which, by the way, is just like not even a blink in cosmic time. Right. But at that time, things cool down enough so that these material entities, these particles, can exist. And they still are in relationship. You've got to remember that, that, that gravity is still in effect. You know, all these other forces are still in effect. But as it cool, And then, by the, by, by the way, this, this moment we can see. We can actually see this. We look back in time to 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. We can actually see this wall of w- when this event happened, and the universe went through this phase transition, and it shows up l- like a sphere, like the inside surface of a sphere that's covered with slight t- temperature and density differentials. Anyway, it's called the mi- cosmic background radiation. So <clears throat> after that threshold is crossed, we've got a dark universe. The space is dark and cold, kind of like the space that you could see this morning when you're looking at th- That's the space that emerged at that 380,000-year uh, mark. So, but all that material, all that residual hydrogen and helium that was formed in the beginning of the universe is still out there. You know, it's floating around, and it's still subject to those rules, those forces. 
and those forces start to pull that hydrogen back together into mm -hmm. these aggregates of hydrogen. When those hydrogen aggregates get big enough and the gravity is strong enough, it ignites a nuclear furnace, and bang, that's the emergence of stars. So stars mm -hmm. suddenly appear in the universe. Now, if you went back to this world, this universe, with your iPhone and took a picture, you'd think, this is the world. Mm -hmm. It's dark. There are stars, but no galaxies, no Earth, no humans, no life, nothing, none of this complexity that we see around us. But it's just a, you'd think that was the world. Mm -hmm. you know, that was the universe at that time. So th here's what's cool, though. Those forces that were there at the beginning of the universe, well, we still have them, and they're still acting. Now they're acting on stars. Okay, so the stars tend to congregate just like the, ha the uh, atoms of hydrogen did into what we can now recognize as galaxies right. and globular clusters. So this new structure emerges in the universe. That emergent moment, that's like it happens again and again and again all the time. We're in this constant state of new things emerging, like right now. Anyway. Right. And they're emerging because of um, the relationships between them and exactly. the temperature differentials that cause them, right? Well, it depends on... And it gravitation. Depend, it depends on what entity yeah. we're talking about. If we're talking right. about the, you know... If we're talking about the stars, it's about gravity at first, right, and then right. th and then nuclear. The nuclear force gets involved, right. you know, and when that's when that kicks in and starts ripping the nucleus apart, that's when nuclear fusion begins. That's when bigger and bigger elements get get created as well: hydrogen, mm -hmm. helium, you know, calcium, oxygen, all the things that we live by today. And this is the origin of that idea that we are made of star stuff. Is that this is going on inside the, the, the middle of stars, but it's a cosmic process. And we can all sort of agree that this is a cosmic process. Well, that right. cosmic process is still going on. In fact, right. it's going on in this room. You know, uh -huh. It's not <laughs> just going on in the stars. It's right. that process of novelty popping out of relationships in new ways. Right. That's like the story of the universe. Is and this is emergence. And I think right. we, you know, somehow we're overlooking this. It's, it reminds me of that story... Uh, you know, there's two young fish swimming along, older fish going the other direction. Say, hey, how's the water today, boys? And they, right. you know, like they smile at them politely. They keep swimming along. Ten minutes later, like, what the hell is water? Right. You know? <laughs> it's it's exactly. like that. I mean, it's right. really like that. <laughs> right. We're like immersed in this all the time, and we forget. It's so obvious that we actually have to stop and take note of it. Right. So I don't know where we are in the evolution <laughs> of the universe here, but <laughs> right. We've got stars galaxies. and universes, stars and, yep. gal and galaxies, and galaxies, galaxies galactic yeah. systems. Yep. Yep. So yep. St here's the other cool thing: is those stars. The ancients thought that they were just permanent. Like, this was the one permanent thing in the universe was stars. Well, it turns mm -hmm. out they're not. They actually have a life cycle. You know, and right. I can use the phrase life cycle, and everybody knows what I mean. But are they alive? You know? But they are born. They do have a life, and, and then they, they die. do die. Right, right. right. And by the way, that's an emergent thing. That, that, that entities can have a life cycle, mm -hmm. even that is an emergent thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So some of those stars, depending on what their mass is to begin with and how big they are, they either burn through their hydrogen really quickly and go supernova, at which point they create all the rest of the heavy elements because stars can only go up to about iron. Mm -hmm. But in order to get the rest of the stuff, the really heavy elements, we need something like a supernova explosion. And in that explosion, there's this massive percussion wave, and it goes out and it creates all the heavier elements, and it also disperses all these elements, these raw materials for the rest of the universe, out into space. And I have a feeling a planet is coming. Absolutely. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, well, about, I think it's like four and a f almost five billion years ago, you know, there was a supernova, it's believed, in this area. And our solar system is basically the, ru the rubble. It's right. formed from the rubble of that. 
And so what you get is the same process that happened at the beginning of the universe and in the, and in the formation of stars and in the formation of galaxies is now happening with the formation of a solar system. So you have this central star that forms. Hydrogen comes together. Helium starts mm-hmm. to ignite, sends out this, you know, this energy. And there's this ring of debris, and in the, toward the middle of the debris is all the rocky and metallic planets, and further out are the gassy planets. So you get this differentiation happening, which right. is really important to understand that this is – because that process of differentiation of mm-hmm. a solar system right. is critical. That happens all the time. When we talk about economic systems later on and how they evolved right. through differentiation and specialization and division of labor and all that stuff – same cosmic process. That is a critically important piece that I really do hope we get to zero in on is, is the uh, fractal nature, I guess. Or, yeah, well, or, that's or, one, it's yeah. one way to think of fractals. I mean, you can think right. of fractals as a mathematician does, right. or you can think about fractals as a lived experience. Right. A fractal as a lived experience is being able to understand that this stuff happens across all scales, and, right. and we're, you can't get outside of it. You're in it. You're right. part of it. You're right. an intimate part of it. So we've got solar systems now. We've got this incredibly rare planet, this, you know, this like rocky planet that's so improbable. I even have a hard time believing that it's not, you know, it, this, the fact that it's so improbable that we have this planet is something we overlook all the time. Right. I'm going to say quickly that this is What's Next. I'm Peter Buffett, and we're talking to Rich Blundell. And now we're on the planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great, great, great segue. Yes. What's a planet? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, yeah, was, right. <laughs> uh, I was actually interested to, to learn that Jupiter was almost a star, right? And, or it, it, I the, didn't know that. Yeah, there was some information somewhere where it, it was like a failed star. Okay, well, yeah, no. that happens. That definitely, right, yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's different there's there's dif- diversity in terms of stars too, you know, mm-hmm. like some are fast and burn really fast, some are slow, like some are medium like ours, 10 billion year lifespan, right. luckily for us. Mm-hmm. We got another 5 billion years left. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we've got this earth now, which is essentially a stage and it's getting rained down on it from all those supernova generations prior are what's raining down are all the raw materials for the stuff that we are, the stuff that we live in right now. Right. right. And you get water, oh, by the way, which is an, an emergent property. When you get hydrogen and oxygen coming together and getting kinky, you get water. Right. That. Okay, so that's everywhere. And you've got all these dissolved organic and non-organic. And here's the funny, you know, when I was growing up, I thought, you know, life, it'll never be explained. Like, how can you explain the difference between something that's alive and something that isn't? Well, we have, we have possible st- scenarios for that not just possible but plausible okay so you can if you really study on your own time the uh (laughs) you know the 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 genesis of life Mm -hmm. it makes sense it's like oh yeah i can understand how that can happen once you really understand the details enough you can think it's possible Mm -hmm. so there's a connection between the living and the non-living there that you can there's a bridge there that you can go across right um, even though we don't know exactly what it is, there's some right. really plausible theories. Right, but there is a little mystery there, which, again, we started with a mystery. Now there. we're at another mystery. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But, again, if you were to take, you know, tra- if you could somehow magically travel to that early Earth, and by the way, this is after a period of intense bombardment with asteroids and volcanic activity everywhere. You know, it was inhospitable. So the point is life didn't just happen. There was a period when this planet was utterly hell. You know, right, you couldn't, right. life could not exist on this planet. Right. That's really important when we think later about something like climate change. Mm-hmm. Look, 
there's no guarantee that it's going to be this pleasant here. You know, it, yeah. it has been <laughs> this. It has been this way in the past, and it can go back. It is possible that this planet right. can become non-inhabitable to humans, and we have to take that seriously because it's happened before. And when once you sort of confront that reality, it becomes more of a possibility. It breaks you out of this dream that we're in that it could never happen. Right. And it right. can, and we right. could do it. Right. And we might. Okay, but anyway, the point is we've got life now on the planet. It's early life. It's uh, simple. It's the atmosphere is, doesn't have any, you know, it, it's not an oxygen rich. It's a reducing atmosphere. Right, which is an interesting thing to, to uh, learn is that the atmosphere was not at all uh, oxygen based. It was really right. like um, ammonia. What was it? Sulfur? Well, it was re- a reducing. It was yeah. Re- yeah. So yeah. it was it was highly toxic to life yeah. today. Right. Right. Uh, but that shifted when when. Through other process of emergency emergences and all kinds of other special relationships that were going on, you get these multicellular organisms and these organisms that can create oxygen and put it into the atmosphere. And there's evidence for all this. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have the time, you just you always just look at the rocks. You, know, you look right. at banded iron formations. This story is recorded for us. Right. So, uh, but over time, things get more and more complex through more and more emergences and. And as they do, more and more new relationships pop up, you know, and, and some of those relationships are dead ends. Some of them catch on, and the system shifts because of it. Right. So sometimes an emergence happens where the system in which it is, the system in which it takes place, it changes the system. Right. Which is really Also important. an important, yeah. very important point when you think about where we are today. Right. Yeah. So, so shift, systems can shift, and they can shift because of these momentary things magical things that happen call emergences mm-hmm. and they happen across all scales and then we've got you know evolution kicks in darwinian evolution which may have actually been kicked in may have kicked in earlier we don't really know there's this idea called universal darwinism but we don't need to go to that the point is we've got a, we've got this process for increasing diversity increasing the capacity for new relationships on the planet through living forms mm-hmm. some and people call it novelty right yeah the it word, is yeah, yeah. exactly and eventually, you know, uh, there's a, by, by sheer accident or some sort of force in the universe, creative force, you know, this organism arises, emerges, that has a spe- specific sort of neural circuitry up in its head. It's not about size. It's about the complexity and the density and the structure of the neural circuitry. And a new emergence happens, this sort of this, this, this consciousness you know, that can emerge from that particular relationship between neurons in a biological brain happens, okay, and it shifts. That's one of those yeah. ones that shifts the system. It's a really important emergence. And, you know, you know the story from here. I mean, that's the part. This is, where it gets, this is where it gets blurry for me, too. Right. After yeah. humans emerge and, and, and right. the agrarian revolution and right. the acceleration happens and the industrial revolution technology and all that stuff, it, it goes fast. But we're pre... But, but the point is, somehow we've managed to keep these two stories separate somehow. Right. Scientists do that stuff. Historians do that stuff. Right. No, right. That, that won't work anymore. Exactly. And I think that's the, that's the critical piece of this, obviously, which we talked about in the beginning, is breaking down those walls between the two yeah. and going, okay, wait a minute. This is all related. Yeah. And also letting the data guide us into that. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the data right. is saying, look, you, if you really want to understand this process, you can't just specialize in one tiny little thing. Y- you can, right. and that will be productive, and that will be valuable knowledge. But if you really want to take hold of it, if you really want to maximize your understanding, 
you got to go bigger. You got to start thinking right. out, out. Context matters. Right. And context doesn't necessarily match your particular discipline. Exactly. And so do we want to then start at about 200,000 years ago when when we showed up? Or is there more to say before we get there? Well, there's always more to say. I mean, there's a lot more to there's, say. There's always more to say. <laughs> there's that, that meteor, for instance. That Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, well, that, yeah. I mean, how much time do we have that I really talk about? Well, if, right. You know, exactly. About the story itself. Because Right. It's a rich, rich story. We can talk right. about it forever. Right. And, and to remember that the the show we're on is called What's Next. And, and yeah. my greatest uh, feeling is that you can't know where you're going unless you know where you come from, right? So, and, and generally, although we're talking about the planet, uh, in the bigger sense, we're talking about us as the only species that's really uh, had its hands on all the controls that could bring uh, ourselves uh, down and some things certainly down with us. But but really, I don't think there's another species that says uh, if we make some wrong decisions, we're not going to be here anymore. Well, other species have done it. I mean, right. you know, when, when the atmosphere changed from reducing to oxygen, Right. I mean, right. That it, was it, caused by living organisms that just wiped themselves out. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Luckily for us. But. Yeah. And, and but how much consciousness around the systems they were, you know? Yeah. Right. The, right. Well, I don't know. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's no. true. Which I'm going to uh, 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 say one thing that's always been on my mind in terms of understanding ourselves and history in general and. Um, and prehistory, because I also always want to remind people that when we talk about history, we're talking about 10,000 years or so of what most people, you know, when, when, because people talking about human history, recorded history, that's a very, very small slice of time. Uh, and I think people think it's all time. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's what's, that's another thing that's really great about big history is that it presents, it presents an opportunity to examine that. Right. And to right. question that is, you know, and to see it, to be aware of the scale of change that we have right. just changed, that we have caused so rapidly. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, re pretty um, uh, reckless, if you ask me. It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buff. It's Radio Woodstock 100.1. More with Rich Blundell in just a moment. What's next with Peter Buffett? I'm Jimmy Buff, and time for another episode of Cello Dog and Mr. B. And this one has a lot to do with what we're talking about this week. Hey, Cello Dog. Hey, Mr. B. Do you think it's possible for everyone to feel joyful and included? Oh, yeah, Mr. B. In fact, I'm sure that this has been the case for most of your human existence, and it will be again. Humans haven't been around for very long. Only about 200,000 years. Trees, that tree over there, about 350 million years. The bird in the tree, hmm, I'd say about 150 million years of birds. The bee buzzing around your head, about 90 million I would give you humans at least another few million years before you really figure yourselves out. 
Thanks, Cello Dog. That makes me feel more hopeful. What's next with Peter Buffett? I'm Jimmy Buff, and we're joined again by Rich Blundell. I'd, I'd like to now kind of kick us forward to about 200,000 years ago so we can talk about us as humans. Um, but there's one question that always nags me, and that is, in general, you know, we're talking about uh, 500 years of scientific inquiry and discovery and maybe about 150 years of really deep uh, ologies, you know, in terms of maybe 200 years. But but uh, still today, there's something uncovered and people go, oh, my God, that reset our whole thinking around X or around Y. So I always wonder, is there going to be, you know, somebody somewhere that digs something up and goes, oops, you know, this happened way differently than we thought it did? Probably not that big. I mean, okay. I... It's a good, r- actually. Well, <laughs> I mean, they'll, uh, it's all provisional. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, the story itself is provisional. But there, we have a system here for r- ferreting out mm-hmm. wrong information. Right. You know, every graduate student out there <laughs> is committed to proving something wrong. Right. And mm-hmm. stuff. You know, this is this is the philosophy of science, and this mm-hmm. is how it's supposed to work when it works. You know, ideally. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. But then again, you know, we're discovering stuff. I, I do think that we are in, in, the, in the midst of a paradigm shift. I know right. that sounds, you know, kind of cliche, but I do think that we are coming to new understandings of the stuff we already know. So I'm, well, not, sh- oh, yeah. I'm not sure that, like, a discovery is going to come along and, says, and, and, and shift everything, but, but I think new interpretations of the stuff we already know right. has the capacity to really put us into a new orbit right i love that and that is why we're here and it's why you're here so interpret away <laughs> <laughs> and that actually happens a lot you know yeah. <laughs> uh, co- cholesterol from eggs was bad for 25 years and suddenly it's not anymore yeah. they right. re-examine the same evidence with different and there was a paradigm shift in that is that a paradigm shift i mean i, I think you know uh, kuhn who wrote the structure of science he might, he might disagree with you okay uh, but <laughs> but it is um I, i'm thinking more along the lines of you know who are we in the universe mm-hmm. or, you know mm-hmm. that's what i mean by oh indeed and yeah. i was just using that as a, a, yeah. a common daily example of right. how you how something can be something 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 and then it's not anymore yeah. it's something well that's different. normal Which happens though. a lot that's yeah. like that's yeah. what's to be expected in a story that we're writing as we <laughs> learn yeah. You know, right. that's, yeah that's Good. yeah and and that's the other thing that that makes you feel like you're actually on the you're actually at the cutting we are actually on the cutting edge of these new understandings like mm-hmm. there is no future that we're really working into we're creating the reality of the future as yeah. we go along here. So it, it makes sense that it's provisional. You know, right. it, it right. makes sense that we've, we're getting better and better. But you know what? We'll probably never finish this task. And this gets into some real deep philosophy about the nature of knowledge. You know, right. in other words, right. if you really start thinking about emergence and you think about ideas as emergent properties of the universe, a new idea extends the universe. You know, hmm. It's not just expanding physically. But a new idea that emerges is part of the universe, too. So 
that's where we are, man. Like we're at that we're at that uh, that, that that advancing edge of the universe through our knowledge as well. That's a really, I think it's hard to grasp, but right. that's the kind of interpretation that can shift everything. And what's so interesting is knowledge expands that and imagination expands Absolutely, that. Absolutely, right? yeah. And that is limitless to some extent. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know where the edge of that is, but the, the idea that um, we are imbued with imagination where, again, I, I, I'm not sure other species are. I think they probably are in some ways, but we have a certain capacity uh, that is way beyond all the others, and um, so well. <laughs> let's and let's this go is, back and start. Well, there. this is this is why mm-hmm. you know I, I sort of mentioned that if you were to go back to the early universe and take a you know take an iPhone photo, if you were to go back to the early Earth, take a go back to you know the Jurassic and look around, and you would think that was the world. But right. we live in a radically different world than that. Tomorrow right. is going to be r- just as radically different, right. and that means radically different. And therein, and you know what? It's, it all goes all the way back to that mystery, that, mm-hmm. that radical right. change somehow connected to that mystery right. at the beginning. It's still with us. And therein lies what's next because the culture, the current culture, I think, uh, always wants things to appear uh, somewhat static so it can survive, so it can stay intact in some way because if – if every moment is essentially a revolutionary or evolutionary moment, um, that's scary to a lot of people because they need to count on something. But that can change too. Right. That idea that yes, that right. idea that we all want it to be static, or that mm-hmm. or that we're afraid of that change, that mm-hmm. can change. Right. You know, it, right. And, and that's part of the practice here. I think is is getting comfortable with that that level of radical change and actually finding some joy in it, some some sort of satisfaction. In, in participating in that radical creativity of the universe. Right. That is a tremendous line, to, to find joy in participating in the radical creativity of the universe. As opposed <laughs> to going to the old standby fear that this is going to take everything that I care about or love away. It's exactly. not, actually. Exactly. So maybe we could, for a minute, focus on that. So we've been around about 200,000 years, right? We, if we could recognize ourselves um, uh, as the person that, that came in to work with you today or something uh, 200,000 years ago. And yet we weren't writing until about 35,000 years ago, or speaking, I should say, speaking mm-hmm. until about 35,000 years ago, writing about 5,000 years ago, right? Is that, yep, that, yep, that yep. am I mm-hmm. on track so yep, far? Yep. So for over 150,000 years, uh, as far as we know, we were not actually speaking is that no, true? but we were communicating. Right. And this is what I think is really cool. Like, you know, maybe we have been um, accountants for 10,000 years, but we've mm-hmm. been artists for like 35 or 40,000. We, right. we were artists long before we were accountants. Right. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> yet, yet the human condition, though, has people so focused on what's here and now. They don't look beyond the borders, right? Like I, I heard a description of a light year recently and um a light year in terms of distance is uh if you uh, stretch out a mile you know a light year is an inch of that mile okay right so people aren't thinking for the mile they're thinking for the inch they're thinking that yeah the world could was different and it could be different but not beyond my borders not beyond my horizon yeah but engaging with the cosmic narrative has this way of becoming relevant to this moment it, you don't have to think in terms of light years it's today man it's like now these right these physics these phenomena these 
forces, these processes, they're all, we're immersed in them now. This stuff is now. And we can draw on the wisdom of light years ago today. You know, right. It, it, right. This is what it means to like notice the water you're swimming in. We're surrounded by all this creativity. It's it's showing. It's the signposts are everywhere about you know about our connection to this universe. That's not theoretical. That's mm-hmm. practical. You right. know, it matters to today. Knowing how we got into these situations is one thing. You know, that's the explanatory power of the story. But then there's a phenomenological or a lived experience power of the story that we can all experience today, right now. You, you know. It, it, it's it's a shift though. It's a real paradigm shift that the, the you have to. It's a cognitive shift, which is what my research is all about. That we have to go through in order to actually become aware of that. Right. Does that make any sense? Uh, well, sorry. it does. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's a challenge for people who are worried about the electric bill. Right. That's yeah. true. Okay, but 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 assessing all these systems with that old mindset, it doesn't doesn't change the systems. Do you see what I mean? So it's like we can talk about the the suffering that we that we're all experiencing, but that suffering has emerged, you know, as part of that other system. You know, it's it's a it's a system that we've inherited. We have to be thinking about a world where that suffering doesn't ar- we do need to deconstruct the the reasons and the the precursors to these problems. But we also in the process need to be creating a world where those problems, you know, don't exist. Right. We'll have new problems to face in the future, but you know, it, right. Uh, and, and is some of it through our education process, the difference between uh, learning about things and filling our heads up with information so we can better behave and act and, and make a living for ourselves in today's world, as opposed to uh, putting the emphasis on felt experience, on on knowing things because you live them and feel them and understand them, if that makes sense. I I feel like trying to do this through the educational system is critical, but it's also really hard. Right. Really hard. I mean, it's it's a hardened system. It it goes through change, you know, reluctantly all the time. I'm thinking culture is more of the expedient way to do these kinds of shifts. You know, it has to be part of the culture. And, And not count on the educational system to create the culture, but kind of let the no, culture right. help create, create the, the system. educational Absolutely. system. Yeah. Yep, yep. And so that's why, like in my dissertation, I've tried to take this creative practice approach, which tries to bring these ideas into culture directly, you know, straight to the jugular of the problem. Right. Kind of thing. Could you explain how you do that or would like to do that or would like to see culture absorb some of this information in a different way? Sorry, that's a tough one. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think artists play the you know the yeah. leading role here, you mm-hmm. know, and I think especially artists who know the science. Whoa, right. talk about powerful! Right. I think if we can get you know scientifically inspired scientists and 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 uh, artistically inspired scientists right. to start creating programs, um, media, right. curricula, that kind of stuff that taps into this story. Right. In this new interpretive way that 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 privileges relations over right. matter, yeah, um, you know I think we'll be on the right track, right, uh, right. But it's going to be it's risky, you know, like it's just risky. I just came through this academic uh, grinder, and it's <laughs> like, you know, it was it was tough. It was tough to say the things that I really felt needed to be said in that academic environment, and right. I understand why that is. I mean, I've. St- 
I understand the philosophy of science. I understand why they want to protect the sanctity of, of, of empirical knowledge and all that. Right. But, you know, I think we need to assess the damage that our educational system is, the injury that we're suffering now because of our educational system, and right. then let it, just let it change. And, and again, the, the, to me, the kind of the grip, not even kind of, the grip that culture uh, has on our various uh, systems like education and economic uh, and uh, social and so uh, even the way religion uh, has the grip on on people because of the fear. I mean, we've sort of grown uh, our systems around fear and a lot of people will say, oh, we've always been this way. Uh, you know, we've always uh, uh, been at battle or we've, uh, we've always had uh, something like slavery or uh, there's always been this us <laughs> against them <coughs> and othering. And I say no. And, and, uh, and part of that is the limited knowledge I have of the history of this hemisphere before uh, the Europeans came. And not that it was all uh, unicorns and rainbows, but there was a different way of living and relating to each other. And and that's th kind of the best history I know that's both recent and prehistory at yeah. the same time. I'm, I'm not sure we should endeavor to, to go back. Yeah, I don't even think it's no. possible I, to No, back. I agree. But we can right. draw on that knowledge exactly. and bring right. it forward because right. it's needed. Right, exactly. And uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that's a good idea. Right, right. You know? And you mentioned religion. I just want to say this one thing about religion because that comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm a scientist first and foremost, really. Mm -hmm. You know, Maybe an artist, hopefully. Right. Trying to yep. be anyway. <laughs> um, but I'm a scientist. And you know what? I love religion. Mm -hmm. I just love it. Mm-hmm. In terms of like how it emerged in the universe and what it sought to do, and it's this expression of this human ingenuity and creativity and right. and and wanting to belong to something bigger. All of those things are you know why would you want the dogma right. and all that stuff could go. But the point is, in its purest form, right. religion is part of this story too. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Um. And and we're still working it out. You know. Mm -hmm. I mean. No, really, it's only any of those systems, frankly, as control mechanisms that yeah. th where the issue comes in. Absolutely. Um, but as a invention, you know, as a creative act, yeah. essentially, um, many things are are uh, to be celebrated, mm -hmm. really. And I had talked uh, before you came in about the fact that uh, for many thousands of years, you can probably tell me how many, you know, we were in clans. We were in yeah. family and extended family units. Uh, and it was easy to find meaning in that because you kind of knew who you were hanging around with. Mm. When it gets to tribal and larger, you have to start to come up with uh, uh, these kind of larger ideas of belonging. Uh, and then when you suddenly settle down and you become cities and states, and then then I think monotheism sort of came out of that. It's like we need a bigger father mm. uh, to believe in something larger, which is, uh, again, not to say it's bad. It's just that it's it's needed you talk about it a lot. We are meaning-making machines. We constantly have to have that as our our uh, guiding force to some extent. And that meaning-making emerged. You know, right. it, it emerged from those same processes that happened at the beginning of the universe, that happened in the formation of galaxies. It's the same process of emergence just in the realm of ideas. Right. And I don't know, I just, I think that, you know, we, Let's keep going with it. Right. Let's just keep pushing ahead with more and more ideas on how to be in this universe. Right. And those one, those the ones you mentioned, they worked at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, thirty-five thousand <clears throat> years ago, again to get to the spoken word, 
imagine the technology behind these small mouth noises we're making, right? <laughs> right? And, and that we agree on the meaning, which allows them to spread. Um, you know, it's, it's no different essentially than the printing press or the internet. It mm. is a technology that we're using right now talking to each other. Well, and, and an extension of that technology is going into this microphone through that box over there, out through an antenna to the whole region here, which right. is like... By the way, thank you for that. You, <laughs> every That's why we call it the magic of radio. Yeah, every right. time I come here, though, I like look forward to listening to this station, man. This right. is like has such a good vibe. It, really, it comes through the waves, man. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah. So yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no. The, the, what occurs to me though is that mystery before, right? We go yeah. to however many zeros, four point point zero 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 four one. We know we can track the beginning of the. You know, the Big Bang to that moment. Yeah. But we don't know what's it, and which to me points up the limitation of our thinking, right? We can't imagine nothingness before somethingness. Like, there had to be something before well, something, right? I just came from a, a Buddhist, uh, they shouldn't call it a retreat. There was not a lot of retreating going on there, but mm -hmm. I came from this Buddhist thing, and, and uh, we, we were getting into that, the void, and whether or not. It seems like they have a pretty good handle on what that nothing <laughs> Uh -huh. Is so, uh, but people do because yeah. people want to fill that vacuum with something. They want to fill it with a creation myth of one sort or another that works for a particular belief system for them. Right. Because we don't like the mystery. Right. But I would argue that if we let's look around at the problems we face, maybe we should start designing our origin myths around some of the problems. In other words, let's look at the problems that we're facing, in particular right. the Anthropocene, which is part of my research. We can mm -hmm. talk about that if you want. But yeah. Um, looking at the problems we face and reflect on them, the solutions that we want to create in our in our narratives. Right, right. Yeah. It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buffett, and we're in the studio with Rich Blundell. And, Rich, you have um, sort of uh, an experiment talking about radio and music. Um, yeah. we, you have uh, sort of uh, a, a way to illustrate emergence for well, us? Well, a way to feel it. A way okay. To, a way to even better. lived experience of emergence and... You know, this one, I've never said this before. I've never tried this before, so it's an experiment, but I figured it'd be good for radio because it's very audio-oriented. Um, essentially, this is a story of emergence, and it's a very special emergence because we actually captured it on tape, which is a really rare thing to capture a moment of emergence. And this is a huge moment of emergence. You have to think about a universe before Southern Rock, you have to think about it, the universe before Leonard Skinner, before Marshall Tucker, before the Almond Brothers. It didn't exist in the universe. But on this one November day, I think it was 1968, in a little studio down in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and you've got to think about the context of this. This is the Deep South, 1968. There's all kinds of racial tensions. Right. The hippie thing is just starting to, to get up. Dwayne Almond is down in... In, uh, in Alabama, trying to get a job as a session guitarist. He's at Muscle Shoals. Uh, Wexler, the guy who runs it, is up in New York, can't be around. Wilson Pickett shows up at the studio to record something. Rick Hall, the owner of the studio, has to take over because Wexler's gone. So these are, this is the context. So this right. is the backdrop. The session musicians, who are really great, they go out to lunch, and they, don't, they feel uncomfortable going out there with, with the colored guy. That's the term they were using back in the 60s. So they don't want to be out there, you know, in the right. deep south. They, 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 t they talk about getting these looks and feeling this energy. Dwayne Allman, who's this, like, hippie, long hair, doing the... They don't, him especially, they don't want to be seen with him. So Wilson Pickett and Dwayne Allman 
hang out back at the at the studio while these guys go to lunch. They get the idea to record "Hey Jude," which is a you know a, a Beatles song, Paul McCartney, a pop song. They get the idea to record that. Okay, so they everybody's against it pretty much, but they try it anyway. So all these contextualizing issues are out there. They come back to the studio after lunch. They start the song, and it's this classic Wilson Pickett. It starts out as this classic. You know, right? Yeah. What'd you call it? Soul, R and B, kind of bluesy. Yeah. All stuff that's in the universe already. We've already right. got the blues. We've already got jazz. We've already got Wilson Pickett. <laughs> so as the song goes on, though, at about uh, two minutes and fifty-eight seconds, something happens. Right. Right here. <laughs> that, man, that is, that is the moment of the emergence of Southern rock in the universe on that <laughs> November day, 1968. That's awesome. Uh, that That's great. Amazing. That's how it works, right. too, man. Right. And it's everywhere. Right, That's, right. That's it. That's it. And you can't take that apart. It yeah. happened in combination. And here's the really cool thing. It depended on all of those contexts, the diversity of those. If it was just, you know, a bunch of dudes sitting around jamming, right. it, that does happen. But it, right. was, it was that particular diversity of, 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 of contexts that created that moment. And right. ever since, the world has been changed. Including social context and culture, right? Because they didn't go out to lunch. They stayed back. They well, talked. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, they, a, it, right. exactly, exactly. Yeah. But that yeah. process of emergence that happens at the beginning of the universe. That happens at the beginning of the planet. That happens at the beginning of life. It happens in this room. It happens in your... Um, when ideas come together like that, that's emergence. The, our thoughts are emergent. You know, that's, that's nuts. And that, you know, nobody's really talking about that yet. But the big history story makes that, like, abundantly clear. What's next with Peter Buffett? I'm Jimmy Buff, and our thanks again to Rich Blundell for joining us for the entire show this time out. The show is executive produced by Shannon Mueller, and be sure to like the What's Next with Peter Buffett Facebook page. We'll see you next time.